Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 15th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A landmark employment law case will soon be decided by the California Supreme Court and will cause California's top court to go head-to-head with the United States Supreme Court over the application of employer arbitration agreements that seek to limit employees from pursuing Private Attorney General Act, that's PAGA, claims against them and proceed to arbitration instead. This case involves Eric Adolph, who was a driver for Uber Eats, a meal delivery service, and a company owned by Uber Technologies Incorporated. Adolph created an account to use the Uber Eats app before he began making deliveries and accepted an arbitration agreement which said that it is governed by the Federal Arbitration Act. Adolf soon filed a putative class action complaint against Uber, claiming that the employer had misclassified employees as independent contractors and failed to reimburse the class members for necessary work expenses. His complaint was later amended to include only California Attorney General PAGA Act cause of action. So Uber filed a motion to compel arbitration of Adolf's individual claims, to strike the class action allegations and stay all court proceedings. But the trial court refused to compel arbitration, citing the California Supreme Court 2014 decision in Iskanian versus CLS Transportation of Los Angeles and the cases that followed it. In Iskanian, the California Supreme Court held that an employee's right to bring a PAGA action is unwaivable and that an employment agreement that does so is contrary to public policy and unenforceable as a matter of state law. Uber appealed the ruling of the trial court, but this April the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court in an unpublished opinion, since the case was unremarkable at the time. The Court of Appeal in that case, however, acknowledged that in its ruling, About 11 days prior to its April opinion, the United States Supreme Court heard arguments on an important case relevant to the issue in the case of Viking River Cruises versus Angie Moriana. In the Viking case, the Supreme Court of the United States was asked to determine if the California Iskanian case was preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. Nonetheless, rather than waiting for a decision by the Supreme Court of the United States, the Court of Appeal went ahead and fell in line with other California decisions and concluded that unless and until the United States Supreme Court or the California Supreme Court directly overrules it, the courts in this state must follow the rule in Iskanian. Then about two months later, the Supreme Court of the United States published its decision in Viking, agreeing with the arguments made by Viking Cruises and limiting the application of the Iskanian case in California. The U.S. Supreme Court decision in Viking has now at least temporarily disrupted the PAGA process against employers who have arbitration agreements in California. Hence, on July 22, 2022, the California Supreme Court granted Uber's petition for a review in the Adolf uh, Uber Eats case. 
The Uber case, which was unremarkable then, is now remarkable, since the timing makes it the case chosen to decide how the Viking Cruises decision will be applied in California. The Uber Eats case will now be the arena where California employers will wage their battle to limit the application of the Private Attorney General Act against them in favor of arbitration of each employee's individual claim. The outcome of the battle is uncertain, but will no doubt be closely followed, as it will have a major impact on California employment law one way or the other. And in another case, an injured worker failed to prove an adverse employment action after she returned to work from an industrial injury in another employment law crossover case. The injured worker was Catherine Eadson, an electrician for Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, a facility that is managed by the Regents of the University of California and is on a 200-acre site in the Berkeley Hills. Eadson became a permanent lab employee in November 2001 and was assigned to the Maintenance, Repair, and Operation Group, working with the Fire Alarm electrician crew. Five years later, in 2006, Eadson fell off a ladder at work while rewiring a switch and was out on medical leave for just over a year to recover from her industrial injury. She was eager to return to work, but disappointed that she could not return to her previous electrician job, since that involved climbing ladders, which she could not do at the time because she was still experiencing vertigo and dizziness. A return-to-work coordinator and accommodation specialist assisted her return to work with the fire alarm crew, but instead of working in the field, she worked mostly in an office. And the lab continued to reassess what types of accommodations and work restrictions were appropriate for her, and over time, she was gradually cleared to work in other settings and capacities. But she complained that she was being paid less than the other supervisors in maintenance, repair, and operations, and that they were being invited to training sessions that she was not being invited to attend. She raised her concerns in 2011 and several following years, including filing a formal grievance with the lab in January 2014. The lab's Human Resources Department conducted an analysis and concluded that there were no issues with Eadson's classification or her pay. The lab ultimately offered her a job in the commissioning department, which was a promotion that offered her a higher pay range. Eadson accepted the job, but did so under protest because she did not want to change positions. Then in 2017, Eadson sued her employer for violations of the California Fair Employment and Housing Act, known in the industry as FIHA. As of the time of trial in May 2019, Eadson was still employed by the lab in the commissioning department and had received annual pay increases, but nonetheless continued to be unhappy in her position. And after the trial, a jury found in her favor on the disability-based claims and concluded that Eadson suffered an adverse employment action as a result of disability discrimination and retaliation. They also found that reasonable steps were not taken to prevent discrimination or retaliation. So the jury awarded Eadson $650,000 in damages. 
Then the regents filed a motion for judgment notwithstanding the verdict. That's called a JNOV, which was granted by the trial court, which concluded that as a matter of law, Eadson failed to prove that she suffered an adverse employment action. Her appeal was affirmed in the unpublished case of Eadson versus Regents of the University of California. Although this is an unpublished case, thus adding no new controlling law in California, the opinion nonetheless provides an excellent summary of what constitutes an adverse employment action. The opinion quoted excerpts from the 2005 California Supreme Court decision in Yanowitz versus L'Oreal that went to great lengths to explain the requirements to prove an adverse employment action by an employer. The determination of whether a particular action or course of conduct rises to the level of actionable conduct should take into account the unique circumstances of the affected employee, as well as the workplace context of the claim. A change that is merely contrary to the employee's interests or not to the employee's liking is insufficient. The Supreme Court said that workplaces are rarely idyllic retreats, and the mere fact that an employee is displeased by an employer's act or admission does not elevate that act or omission to the level of a materially adverse employment action. If every minor change in working conditions or trivial action were a materially adverse action, then any action that an irritable chip-on-the-shoulder employee did not like would form the basis of a discrimination lawsuit. It is common in workers' compensation litigation to have orders issued by a work comp judge following a request by a party made in writing or at a conference hearing after an oral request. It is also common that there is nothing officially offered and received into evidence to support such an order or a record made by the work comp judge as to why the request was granted or denied. The informality of the workers' comp administrative system is commonplace. However, a recent panel decision points out the need for practitioners to be more careful about how the record is documented. In the case of Byrne Miller versus Pelican Bay State Prison, a WCAB panel granted a petition for removal and rescinded an order that changed the venue of the case and returned the matter to the work comp judge to receive evidence to support his order. The panel summarized this information from the work comp judge's report and recommendation on petition for removal. The state fund filed a petition for change of venue. The work comp judge noted that Pelican State Prison is in Crescent City, California, located in Del Norte County, and that the closest DWC office is Eureka. But the application selected Santa Barbara as the venue based upon principal place of business of the applicant's attorney. An applicant's street address was in Brookings, Oregon at the time. But applicant's counsel's office was located in Westlake Village, California, and is not in Santa Barbara County. A notice of intent to grant the change of venue was issued. And at the conclusion of a hearing, and written in the minutes of hearing, are the words, case transferred to Eureka. So, applicant filed a petition for removal from that order. However, 
except for the information contained in the work comp judge's report and recommendation on petition for removal, the panel wrote that a review of the record in Eames reveals no minutes of hearing or summary of evidence showing what, if any, evidence was admitted at the hearing, what, if any, testimony was presented, or otherwise revealing the reasons or grounds for the order. In discussing the record, the WCAB panel went on to write that a decision by the work comp judge must be based on admitted evidence in the record, and they cited numerous citations to that effect. They went on to say that here the work comp judge failed to make a record of the evidence presented by the parties, and for that reason the WCAB panel was unable to evaluate the merits of the petition. Therefore, it rescinded the order and returned the matter to the trial level for development of the record as to the issue of whether venue should be transferred to Eureka District Office. This case clearly illustrates the consequences for workers' comp litigators who do not meticulously support their case with a record of evidence that is offered, received, or rejected, and then the process well documented in any record of an order or decision. And in another case, after an 11-week bench trial, a federal judge in San Francisco concluded that Walgreens substantially contributed to San Francisco's opioid crisis by ignoring red flags and continuing to fill prescriptions for drugs, and that Walgreens pharmacies in San Francisco dispensed hundreds of thousands of red flag opioid prescriptions without performing adequate due diligence. This case is part of a nationwide multi-district litigation stemming from the ongoing opioid epidemic where cities, counties, and states across the county have filed claims against manufacturers, distributors, and dispensers of prescription opioids. While the facts of each case vary, the claims center on the contention that each defendant has contributed to the opioid epidemic that has engulfed the country. In this case, the people of the state of California acting through the San Francisco City Attorney filed claims against dozens of defendants related to the opioid epidemic in San Francisco. By the time of trial, only four defendants remained, and during trial, three of the four defendants settled, and by the close of trial, Walgreens was the sole remaining defendant. At trial, the issue was single, a single public nuisance claim against Walgreens. The opinion noted that Walgreens is the largest retail pharmacy chain in San Francisco and that between 2006 and 2020, it distributed and dispensed over 100 million prescription opioid pills in the city. The Federal Controlled Substances Act requires distributors to implement and maintain a system for identifying suspicious orders of opioids which must then be halted and reported to the DEA. Fulfilling this duty requires Walgreens pharmacies to resolve red flags associated with a prescription before dispensing it. Red flags are well-established warning signs that raise questions about the legitimacy of a prescription. The evidence at this trial established that Walgreens violated this regulation duty for several years, and did not maintain an effective system for identifying suspicious orders. The evidence showed that Walgreens did not provide its pharmacists with sufficient time, 
staffing, or resources to perform due diligence on these prescriptions. And its pharmacists experience constant pressure to fill prescriptions as quickly as possible, and there was a shortage of resources to review them before dispensing. And in 2012, the DEA shut down one of Walgreens' three controlled substances distribution centers because the distribution center's failure to monitor for suspicious opioid orders posed an imminent threat to harm to public health and safety. Now, a subsequent trial will determine the extent to which Walgreens must abate the public nuisance that it helped to create. And now, litigation of the prescription drug Zantac may be giving the industry a heads up for a compensable consequence claims. Zantac was first introduced in 1983 and was distributed in the United States by Sanofi. It was extremely popular and effective in both prescription and over-the-counter forms in treating acid reflux and related conditions like ulcers. It has been prescribed over years to workers who have had treatment for an industrial injury and perhaps gastrointestinal problems as a consequence of stress or a reaction to their medications. But in April 2020, the FDA told all manufacturers to stop selling Zantac made with ranitidine because the longer the drug sits on the shelf, the greater the amount of NDMA contamination happens in the drug. Sanafi's new drug, Zantac 360, made with famotidine, is not a part of the lawsuits. Zantac was also popular medication prescribed to military veterans through the VA, and now veterans are filing lawsuits after they're getting cancer diagnoses. There are now several state lawsuits as well as over 2,000 federal cases against the makers and sellers of Zantac. The federal cases have been combined into a multi-district litigation in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida. There have not been any settlements or any trials yet, and a class action suit pending in the Superior Court of Alameda County against Zantac manufacturers here in California is the first to officially schedule a trial date for October 10, 2022. The trial in California is the first in a series of bellwether tests, beginning with a case the plaintiffs have selected. Typically, bellwether trials help plaintiffs and defendants understand how much a case may be worth. The main theory in Zantac lawsuits is that defendants failed to properly warn the public that Zantac's active ingredient, renitidine, is unstable and can form NDMA, leading to an increased cancer risk, and that the Zantac drug label failed to properly warn the public about the risks of cancer. Cancers that qualify for Zantac lawsuits include bladder, gastric, stomach, esophageal, liver, and pancreatic cancers. The National Council of Compensation Insurance's countrywide court case update provides a look at some of the cases and decisions monitored by NCCI's legal team that may impact workers' compensation across the states. This July 2022 edition contains updated information on cases previously introduced and presents new cases and decisions. 
Workers' compensation stakeholders remain mostly interested in COVID-19 and medical marijuana-related cases that it could impact the system. In California and Wisconsin, courts have considered issues related to employer liability for injuries suffered by the spouse of an employee who allegedly contracted COVID-19 at work and spread it to the other spouse at home. In Texas, a federal court held that the work comp exclusive remedy bars a tort lawsuit brought against an employer by the family of an employee who contracted and died from COVID-19. And in Ohio, in the case of Yeager versus Arconic Incorporated, an appellate court found that an employee's contraction of COVID-19 was not an occupational disease in work comp because the employee failed to show that the employment created a risk of contracting COVID-19 in a greater degree and different manner than the general public. And the topic of legal and on the topic of legal marijuana, in 2022, Rhode Island legalized recreational marijuana, and Maryland passed legislation allowing voters to decide on a constitutional amendment that would allow recreational use. And the Mississippi legislature enacted a bill that legalizes medical marijuana. So far, 20 jurisdictions have legalized recreational marijuana, and 38 allow for medical use. In the meantime, marijuana reimbursement in work comp remains a state-by-state patchwork. On June 21, 2022, the United States Supreme Court denied the petition to review the case of Musta versus. Mendota Heights Dental Center, where the court was asked to resolve the question of whether the Federal Controlled Substances Act preempts a state order requiring employers and insurers to reimburse claimants for their medical marijuana use. The case was on appeal from the Supreme Court of Minnesota, which ruled that the prohibition of marijuana possession under the Controlled Substances Act preempts an order made under Minnesota work comp law that required an employer to reimburse an injured employee for the cost of medical marijuana used to treat a work-related injury. And now our crime report. Elias Renteria Sejoviano, an Orange County man, was charged with multiple felonies for impersonating a medical doctor and performing medical procedures including Botox injections, lip and face fillers, and thread lift procedures on numerous unsuspecting victims. The fake doctor is accused of targeting Spanish-speaking women to perform the unlicensed procedures. He has been charged with the unauthorized practice of medicine, false indications of a medical license, and a felony count of perjury, along with several misdemeanors. If convicted on all counts, he faces a maximum sentence of five years and four months in state prison, and he is currently being held on a $1 million bail. He has pleaded not guilty to all counts. Sejoviano was arrested at his business, Botox in Anaheim, located on Brookhurst Street in Anaheim, California. He used various social media platforms to advertise his services to potential clients, including postings on Facebook, TikTok, and others, and they included videos. He also used various aliases, including Dr. Elias, Dr. Elias Renteria, Dr. Elias Renteria, MD, 
and used Elias MD on his vehicle license plate. And he is believed to have utilized other locations for his unlawful medical practice since 2019, including in La Habra, California. Sir Gerviano is accused of performing invasive procedures and injecting victims with potentially counterfeit Botox, fillers, anesthetics, and other medical drugs that place the public at extreme risk. Authorities believe there may be additional victims and are urging anyone who was treated by Elias Renteria Sergiviano to report those procedures to the Orange County District Attorney's Bureau of Investigation. And in regulatory news, this week, Suspense Day at the California Legislature saw several key bills killed while others moved ahead on the path to passage in anticipation of the end of the legislative year on August 31. And a bill passed through appropriations from the suspense file must survive a full assembly vote and another Senate vote before heading to the governor for signing. One of the suspended bills, AB 2370, would have required all state agencies to retain public records for a minimum of two years. This bill arose from the government corruption scandal involving the California Department of Insurance and the workers' compensation insurer applied underwriters. The bill had previously passed through the Assembly and through Senate Judiciary with overwhelming bipartisan support and without a single no vote. State agencies currently have no minimum time requirement to keep records, placing the public's right to access those records at risk, so said the Advocate Consumer Watchdog. AB 20, uh, 2370 was supported by California News Publishers Association, Californians Aware, Consumer Watchdog, First Amendment Coalition, and Oakland Privacy. A second bill prompted by the scandal, AB 1783, would require consultants influencing administrative actions of state agencies to register as lobbyists. It was passed by the committee and now moves to the Senate floor. California's landmark Public Records Act reflects the principle that government transparency is essential to democracy. Yet, there's no minimum retention period for such records that apply to state agencies. As a result, records may be deleted or destroyed before the public or journalists are able to access them. AB 2370, the suspended bill, would have applied to state agencies the same minimum two-year retention period for public records that is already in place for California counties and cities. Just this year, the Department of Insurance adopted a record deletion policy that would have automatically deleted agency email after 180 days unless individual staff manually archived each email. The email deletion policy was pulled back in the wake of media attention. That was developed following statewide news coverage of the pay-to-play scandal involving applied underwriters and cloaked campaign donations to Insurance Commissioner Lara's 2022 re-election campaign. For decades, the drug industry has pushed back each time Congress considered a regulatory measure that threatened its profits. In 
but the hyperbole reached a new pitch in recent weeks as the United States Senate moved to adopt modest drug pricing negotiation measures in the Inflation Reduction Act. So the final bill is weaker than earlier versions, which would have extended negotiations to more drugs and included private insurance plans. The bill would enable only Medicare to negotiate prices beginning in 2026 and initially for just 10 drugs. It is estimated to save the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services about $102 billion over a decade. The bill authorizes hundreds of millions of dollars for CMS to create a drug negotiation program, setting in motion a system of cost-benefit evaluations like those used in Europe to guide price negotiations with the industry. Americans pay on average four times what many Europeans do or more for the same drugs. The DWC announced that all DWC district offices except Eureka will accept in-person walkthrough documents beginning September 6, 2022. Eureka is permanently a virtual office and walkthrough documents should be brought to the DWC Santa Rosa district office instead. After September 6, the DWC will no longer accept virtual walkthroughs in a life-size platform. Virtual walkthroughs were put in place due to the COVID-19 pandemic in 2021. DWC will now accept all walkthrough documents in person. Walkthroughs are available Monday through Friday except on holidays when the division offices are closed. The DWC will still accept by mail or e-filing any documents that are to be acted upon by a judge, including those that may otherwise be submitted by walkthrough. The decision to return to in-person walkthroughs is in line with the Governor Newsom's smarter plan for the next phase of pandemic response. And DWC said it appreciates the community's patience during this transition. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news, our podcasts, and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles of Floyd, Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.